This is the Author Archive podcast. Today, the author is Nancy Campbell. Nancy is a travel writer. She's a poet. And there is a new book called Thunderstone, which she subtitles A True Story of Losing One Home and Discovering Another. Good to meet you, Nancy. Um, Have you got a home at the moment? I have. I'm living in a caravan beside the canal in Oxfordshire, which is in fact the the home I'm in at the end of of Thunderstone. So I've been there quite a lot longer than the span of the book, but it's really become my my much-loved base and a good place for writing. Now, you see, if I was a member of your family, if I was your dad or something, I'd worry about you. Are you all right? I'm fine. I think um, the, the the trajectory of Thunderstone is is um, tells the story of someone who's maybe quite peripatetic. I was living in Germany before lockdown in a in um, a rather fancy um, residency in a in a, a water palace beside the River Regnitz near Munich, and so I'm used to very fancy accommodation sometimes. Uh, thankfully, through my work, uh, but often for very short times. I've also spent um, a winter on the most, in, on, on a very northernmost island in Greenland, working for uh, a Greenlandic museum and in small fishing communities on the north coast of Iceland. So I'm quite used to, to roughing it as well. And um, my life changed quite dramatically during lockdown in that I needed to be somewhere for, for a goodly period of time. And then when, when lockdown ended, I needed to find a way to survive in Oxford rather than sort of wandering around the world. So the caravan, although it may not be everyone's cup of tea in terms of a dwelling place, it's it's a, a stability for me, which is lovely and part of very kind, if slightly eccentric community of uh, narrowboat dwellers and other um other, other curious folk who have chosen <laughs> not to live in the centre of Oxford. Um, as you'll know from the book, David, there's a character called, who I only name the assassin, because I didn't want to name him, give him his real name, who, who apparently has been an assassin in the past, but now is a sort of rather kindly figure who lives in the woods and has helped me with all number of things like uh, fixing my electricity and uh, making cups of tea from time to time. So um, it's not... It's not um, it's not palatial, but I wouldn't worry. <laughs> All right, I won't worry. Um, now, at the start of the book, you have a partner, Anna, and you are somewhere doing peripatetic things, and you hear that she's not very well. Where did you? Where had you been living with Anna? Well, Anna and I had met in Oxford. She'd been working in a bookshop there, although she's um, by trade a translator, and during the next 10 years of our relationship, while I was often working away from home, doing residencies at small museums and completing research for my book on the Library of Ice and and things like this, um, we shared accommodation in Oxford, but often, well, as you all know, Oxford is not a cheap place to live. So (laughs) most of the time we were renting a room in a relative's house or, you know, very cramped conditions and often, not particularly pleasant places. So, so our, my domestic setup was was back in Oxford, and that's where where Anna was and, and where she became ill. Um, she actually, um, I got a call when I was in 
I was in the water palace in Germany, which had always seemed a little bit too dreamlike, too too fantastical and beautiful. I even had a, a gilded balcony, which just made me think <laughs> <laughs> with laurel leaves on it. I thought, well, this is unreal. Something, something's got to give here. This is, sounds a bit Disney. It was a little bit Disney. Uh, I used to have, um, I used to sort of go out on the balcony in, in the morning uh, in my dressing gown with a cup of coffee to look down over the river and there'd be tourists taking photographs of me on the opposite bank. So it was a bit alarming, really. <laughs> but um, from this sort of slightly surreal place of work where I was, um, you know, considered a representative of British literary community, um, obviously everyone has has undercurrents going on in their lives. And Anna and I, were, clearly I was living away from home and, and our relationship was maybe coming to its natural end um, but then uh, about four months in I got a call from uh, an unknown number um, to say that Anna was in hospital and had had a very severe stroke indeed um, so this is where the book really begins um, where where life life breaks in on art but the funny thing is and I use that word it's it's heartrending and it's serious, but you make us smile. Um, you you see the funny side. I mean, the first paragraph in the book is you know, you, you go and meet Anna in um, a hotel in the I, I'm getting confused now in the hospital, and the doctor says to her, "Do you know where you are?" And she says, "In the pub." Yes, in the pub. It, it's one of the consequences of her stroke was that she she developed aphasia, which is um, a com communication disorder where where quite often um, you find it hard to express uh, what you're thinking or feeling. And and there's also um, for some people, it, I mean, it's very the condition varies uh, a lot, but for some people you um, repeat the same thing over and over, even if it's not that's not what you're intending to say. So one, she had various catchphrases, um, one of which was, I later discovered, bizarrely in, in, in the pub. There seemed, they, I couldn't, it was fascinating to try and discover, um, it was like meeting someone all over again, trying to discover what um, what her brain, what her neurons were doing, why, why language was coming out in the way it was and when it wasn't coming out. Uh, what what it was that she was wanting to say? Did um, she? I'm glad it made you smile. <laughs> yes, no, it did. Um, did she have access to the full range and beauty of the of the English language, or was she limited? No, no. I mean, uh, at the very beginning, obviously, a stroke is 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 um, it's interesting in terms that people do make um, degrees of recover recovery, um, but at the beginning she really could only say very few words um and um i mean also her her mobility was severely affected her, she was um her right side was paralyzed um so uh this was introduced to me by a nurse who gave me a brochure entitled one of those you know sort of rather flimsy nhs brochures yes. which is designed to uh, summarize an extremely complex condition for for us mere mortals it's the brochure was called what is communication and um i i remember looking at this and thinking you know devastating for 
for Anna, who, who worked with language at a, a very high level. And, and also in terms of our, our relationship, it was curious having, you know, if you love books, your romantic mm. relationships often revolve around literature too. And um, uh, for us to now face um, a life in which she was choosing to give away her dictionaries and her books and, and um, to learn to, to communicate with someone non-verbally or to coax, you know, to coax words out of them. And, and also I, had, I learned this sort of extreme patience um, that comes when you're waiting for someone to, to, to express themselves and, and to give them that space. So it was a very, um, it was a learn, huge learning curve for me. So how, did she come and um, live back with you in um, the, the rather limited flat that you've been sharing? I won't yeah. go into some of the things that happened, but it didn't sound <laughs> horrible, horrible. It was um it 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 wasn't the best flat. Um <laughs> I um Anna was in hospital for five or six months and also in rehab. She had access to really excellent um physios and speech and language therapists who helped her sort of begin to rebuild her life. But she was still um not quite independent when she left and although we had by then agreed to separate, um, she said to me, would you come and live with me as, as a carer? And her words were, I can't do this without you. She didn't have anyone else she could ask. So um, that was a real cusp in my own life. It was, a, a, I was offered um, freedom from such worries and uh, I could have pursued a quite a, gone back to my rather erratic existence but I, I decided to um, the, the human thing to do seemed to be to stick with Anna and um, so I moved back to the flat and she moved back to the flat in March 2020 and as you know David shortly after that everyone was locked down so um, it was it was a curious lockdown because the um, the, uh, a lot of the medical care that she would have had was was obviously directed in a, towards the pandemic. So I ended up doing a lot of um, things I'm not really qualified for as a as a poet. And um, and yet also I hope the book shows the um, the bond the bond that we made outside you know as, as a domestic partnership and some mm. of the fun we had in in this rather curious sort of relearning of how to how to be together in in a in, yes. in a... It's, it's it's very moving that's why i've read lots of it twice so um how does the how does this van make an entrance then because i can see you not wanting to stay in that grim flat but it would not have seemed a natural choice. I've got a daughter who lives in a van. I worry about her. What made you think <laughs> that it would be good to live in a van? That's very interesting. We'll have to talk about that another time. <laughs> yeah. I want to hear about the van. Um, I, well, I have a friend in Oxford who's a, very different to me. He's a bit of a, a wheeler dealer in his 60s, and um, we've often kayaked together. And um, he introduced himself to me as Sven, short Sven. Sven Garlic. Yes. <laughs> so, so Sven um, 
often comes in to my life and helps fix things. And he is also a carer for his elderly parents. So he knew what um, some of the challenges I was experiencing during lockdown. And I was talking with him because I needed to find a place to move on to. Anna and I had agreed to stay together for a year. And after that, we, we knew that we would both be moving in different directions. She would have made enough of a recovery outside hospital to um, to decide what came next for her and I knew that I would need to go back to my life and my writing. So Sven said, <laughs> what do you want to keep moving around for? And I said, well, I'm a travel writer, that's what I do. One of the wonderful things about Sven is he just doesn't understand literature or my career at all and seems to... <laughs> Seems to think it's I'm just a hopeless case that he needs to solve. <laughs> Why do you want to keep traveling around? He said, and I, I had all these fancy ideas that I might come back to Germany or, or go and live on the Isle of Mull or something. Um, but he said, well, I've got some friends by the canal. They've got a forest. Why don't you buy a caravan and, and put it among the trees there? It'll be cheap. You're clearly not making much money. So you need somewhere like that. And um, I was rather drawn to the idea and I went down to the canal and I met his friends Ashlyn and the assassin. And you say that so casually. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yes it, it's it's just um, it's a matter of course now but uh, um, yeah I was um, I suppose there was a sort of velocity to this adventure on wheels, um, even though it's a, a caravan that doesn't move. And a lot of the book, I think, is preoccupied with with thinking about my sense of stasis and what it means to be in a mobile vehicle that you've chosen to keep in one place. Um, but but it came about so quickly this this static van that um, I really didn't have a chance to to um, to turn to turn back and I wouldn't have done. Uh, Sven and I looked up vans on eBay. We found one for seven hundred and fifty pounds. It seemed suitable. We towed it across a little very very rickety bridge um, into the woods. We weren't sure the bridge would take the van. The other way if, if we decided to move out again so so that was a sort of no exit party and um i cleared a, a patch of nettles in order to find to make space for it and um threw myself into a new life in the woods um one of the one of the good things about being where i am uh has been that being still in oxford i'm able to continue to support Anna, who's still around, um, and yet sort of maintain a, you know, a new life of my own. Yes, because I mean the the irony of having a wheeled home, but um, am I right in thinking you're not able to drive? Indeed, you are, David. <laughs> so yeah. even if you had something to tow it with, at the moment you're not equipped so to do. No, no. And one of my objectives is to learn to drive eventually. When I was growing up in Northumberland, I didn't learn partly from um, just not having the financial resources and also 
because I've always, you know, a lot of, as you'll know, a lot of my writing is about the environment. So it seemed mm. to me that choosing to become a car driver was was sort of counter to some of my ideals. Um, I've subsequently realised that, you know, if you're a carer, for example, it's it's rather important to be able to to be mobile. So, um, I but I can't drive at the moment, and so it's quite ironic that the first home I own should be one on wheels. Um, and you've learnt the hard way something about carbon uh, chemistry. Um, I'm, I'm sure you are against carbon dioxide. I drive an electric car because I'm against carbon dioxide. But you found yourself in close affinity with another carbon compound. Well, yes, all the carbons. I write in, in my previous book a little bit about um, levels of CO2 in the atmosphere and and how they're measured and people are now calculating parts per million and marking time by the parts per million that are in in the atmosphere. Um, there are various hazards to van life as you will know and, um, when I moved in I was given a tiny carbon monoxide detector which by the assassin, ironically, who is, seemed to be out to save my life in every way he could. <laughs> um, so I assumed that this was working and I didn't really maybe appreciate the danger of um, this colourless, odourless gas. Although uh, the assassin has put up monuments to various people who have died along the canal over the years. He's, he's been there for 20 years. And one of these monuments, I, I should say people who've died not at his own hand, but um, yes. a rather, it's a rather beautiful way in a very transient nomadic part of the world to make a record of people who've been there for only a short time, but, but, but recognize that they've made an impact. And um, one of the monuments is to a man who died due to carbon monoxide poisoning on his boat. So it is a real um, hazard of, of this sort of lifestyle. And over the course of the summer, the book is, I've written is a journal of the summer. And um, it's in some ways, in some places, it's just a first draft. Um, it's quite, quite raw. And in some, at some point, you might notice as a reader that the um, the narrative seems to sort of start to drift a little bit. And um, I was myself aware that I was becoming tireder and finding it oddly a little bit like Anna, finding it quite hard to express what I wanted to say. And it was only after several weeks that my friend Sven um, called me and realised that something was really not right because I could barely move from my bed and rescued me and um, printed off the symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning from the NHS website and uh, we then we then realized that the carbon monoxide detector I had hadn't been strong enough hadn't been working and I'd actually been breathing quite high levels of carbon monoxide for quite a while I'm, I was very very fortunate that, that nothing more serious happened um, but I loved the way that Sven um, described the uh, the, the 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 sort of the, the the process of carbon monoxide moving around the body and I, I remember he said oh it hitches a ride 
on the hemoglobin. So he 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 even had a sense he even had a sense of these carbon molecules being um being in some way um, itinerant sort of drivers of their own vehicles <laughs> around on the on the hemoglobin. Uh, we're talking uh, on the 26th of September 2022. Your book finishes on the 24th of September last year. Yes. 2021. Um, 30th, I think. The oh, very end of the month. The very yes. end of the month, yeah. Well, it's so, so we're, we're a year on. Yes, exactly. Um, and the writing is back. You're writing. Yes, yes, exactly. My I've recovered from the carbon monoxide, thankfully. Um, maybe you know, I don't, I, I don't know entirely what the, um, what what the effects are, but but certainly, I'm I'm not feeling as sluggish as I was, and um, it's quite funny to to sort of have have this book now as a as a marker of that summer. I'd agreed with the publisher that I would keep it for four months, so June, July, August and September. But we only made the deal on the book in in July or the beginning of August was when my publisher came to discuss the book. And so in a way, the, it was very much um, an instinctive work that was originally just my diaries. It wasn't intended for publication at all. It was only... Um, Part way through the summer that I thought this might be a story that that I was willing to share because they're quite private journals but also um, did Anna mind you sharing it no not at all of course um that was the big and the first question was was whether she felt it could be um shared and published so we discussed it and um she was more than happy she is more than happy because it's her story too or in a way, it's our story of forging a sort of um, a new friendship beyond a beyond a relationship beyond a mm. romantic partnership, which um, is something I'm enormously proud of. I think that is a it's quite a hard thing to do, and it's the story of what it's like to be a carer, which was a new experience for me. It's a story of what it's like to to love language and then have to find a new way into it for her. And it's a story of her own mobility, really. During the course of the book, she teaches herself to walk again, which was an astonishing thing, David. It was like, I think in the book, I compare it to some an astronaut. There was something sort of that, that glorious and that graceful about it, about her, her rediscovering mobility. And um, she, the book also traces her new hobby of cycling and um, she has a tricycle that she can ride it with um, a charity called Wheels for All which is inclusive cycling at one of the tracks at racing tracks outside Oxford so I, I feel that um, yeah I, I hope it's a good testament to her incredible perseverance and her in, incredible courage in the face of an illness that's very, very hard and, and, you know, has struck her at quite a young age. And why is it called Thunderstone, Nancy? Thunderstone is a stone that has been hit 
by one of Thor's thunderbolts. And I found one of these stones on one of my um, research trips for the Library of Ice. And I was living in Jutland for a summer um, by the Limfjord, which is a, a path that glaciers have cut through, through the top of Denmark, right across between, between the two waterways. And um, a lot of people in Jutland value these tiny stones, which have a sort of star shape on the top, which is a marker from that thunderbolt. And in previous times, they were considered, because Thor is the god of fertility and um, the seasons and supports the crops for farmers, among other things. So these, um, these stones were considered protective and people would put them in their homes on windowsills above stable doors in order to keep bad spirits away. You also find them in Oxfordshire and there's one in the Pitt Rivers Museum um, known as a shepherd's purse. It's one of those wonderful labels in the Pitt Rivers Museum says shepherd's purse put on a windowsill to keep witches out. So they're definitely in all cultures some kind of protective. <laughs> and you, you've got one in your van. I've got one in my van. I um, I I should say that other people, scientists perhaps, might say that they're fossil sea urchins, but I like to believe that they're <laughs> Thor legend. Well, and in is, fact, is it keeping the witches away? Well, I suppose the the conclusion I came to during the course of the summer was that maybe you can't keep the witches away with a stone or by any other means but the witches maybe the witches mark is a new and exciting thing and something to be embraced this book is thunderstone it's a beautiful sometimes funny sometimes worrying read a true story of losing one home and discovering another by nancy campbell nancy thank you very much thank you david lovely to talk to you <laughs>